Hello, fellow time travelers. I am Sasha from the Fiction Paradox Podcast. And I am Skip from the Fiction Paradox Podcast. And I'm Brooke. We're the Fiction Paradox, the only podcast dedicated to the BBC Books 8th Doctor Adventures in the whole world that we know of. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy, Enjoy your, your travels. Your travels. <laughs> <laughs> get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Yard podcast. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Happy listening. Hello, I am Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them or even collect the hardcover editions or maybe the Pinnacle American Editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual. Tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Where you want, I would throw it. Hi, this is Louise Jameson and I play Leela on Doctor Who. Well, way back in the day, that is. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the surprising task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations because no one was expecting the end of the story, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah, I try. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have an equally surprising three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's Worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello! And finally, we have our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch-Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Hello! If you like what you're hearing, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you get per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, mugs and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of them, you've taken to wrapping them up in aluminum foil and putting them behind a deflection barrier. That will make sense to the listeners, but not to the panelists yet. <laughs> just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. 
And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Guy Lambert, and Simon Painter. <gasps> thank you all. Thank you. Oh, I almost yes, thank you. I'm sorry I almost <laughs> didn't make it through. Um, let me explain. Thank you, even though you've killed Tony. <laughs> I have to explain to our listeners, I've had a tenacious sinus infection for the last two weeks. I even had to go and make sure that it wasn't COVID. It's not COVID. It's bad, but it's not COVID. So if ever you hear me lose my breath at any point, that's why, because, yeah but that's okay. It was either getting sick from that or this book making me sick. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl forward slash y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. We now continue with the final story of Tom Baker's fourth season and the final book of our All Dicks All the Time season, with our discussion of the invasion of time. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Invasion of Time, adapted by Terrence Dooks from the script by David Agnew that aired from 2478 to 31178, published by Target Books in February 1980. As of this recording in September of 2021, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 142 pages. We actually have a lot to cover for this one, so bear with me. There's a bit to get into here. Though you already know part of what I'm going to talk about. Okay. First of all, to call this one a troubled production would be an understatement. The original six-part story that would have closed the season was considered too expensive to film, so it fell through very late in the day. There was also yet another industrial strike planned at the BBC just before production started, which necessitated that some of the studio work would be transferred to a local hospital. And yes, that means that most of the TARDIS interiors were filmed on location in a hospital. So make of that what you will. I wondered how they ended up in, in a triage. but Whereas I wonder if the hospital was in a quarry. Well, that, well, they do end up in a quarry too, as it turns out. That's Outer Gallifrey. But the hospital apparently was always planned. But I guess they put it in the script because they knew they would have to use the hospital for location filming. So... Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you're telling me that the Grand Hall of the Panopticon is like an ER waiting room? It No, no. That actually is a standing studio set, but it's not nearly as big as it's described on the page, obviously. Oh. Because of all this, producer Graham Williams was offered the chance to suspend production of the final serial of the season and have the money roll over into the next season. Instead of doing this, he and script editor Anthony Reed worked to put together this script in just two weeks. Taking Robert Holmes' suggestion of doing essentially a four-parter followed by a two-parter, which six-parters up to this point had always been done as. So they altered this story, or they were going to do a completely different story? It's a completely different story. Oh. It's completely different. This is not the six-parter they had planned on doing. They instead wrote the script in two weeks, and they followed Robert Holmes' suggestion of doing the four-parter followed by a six, which is why the first four parts are about the Vardens, and parts five and six are about the Santarans. This doesn't work out so well in the next two seasons, as we'll see, because the next two six-parters are not structured this way, much to their detriment as stories. 
And eventually Graham Williams will end up canceling production on a six-parter at the end of a season due to industrial strikes. So this was just kicking that particular can down the road, unfortunately. Secondly, we lose two companions at the end of this story, but only one actor. What sort of Sphinxian riddle is this, you may ask? (laughs) It goes something like this. As you already know, Louise Jameson had been ready to leave for a long while, and producer Graham Williams equally wanted her to stay. He finally agreed to her request, but he did not agree with her request that Leela be killed off in the story on the grounds that it would upset younger viewers, which, come to think of it, is reasonable enough. The fact that she goes off with Andred, for whom there is no indication in the script she has any romantic feeling at all, tends to upset older viewers. And upset Jameson as well. But like Batman, they figure we can take it. Yeah, (laughs) precisely. She and actor Christopher Tranchell, who played Andrew, did their best to inject some of that supposedly developing romance into their performances. And as you can see from the book, Dix tries to do the same thing on the page, though there just isn't that much to work with in the script to show that that's happening. We do get the incarnation of Barusa, that is Terrence Dick's personal favorite in the story, though. He actually manages to bring back the specific incarnation in his later book, The Nine Doctors. John Arnott plays the second of four incarnations of Barusa we will eventually see, and to the minds of many, he's the best one. Arnott once told Tom Baker that he loved to play boring parts, the more boring the better. And yet there's nothing boring at all about this version of Barusa. <laughs> the next one, on the other hand, <laughs> well, you'll see. Louise Jameson immediately moved on to parts that were as far removed from Leela as they could possibly be. She played Dr. Anne Reynolds in The Omega Factor. She played Blanche Simmons in Tanko, Susan Young in Bergerac, and Rosa DeMarco in EastEnders. She was offered the opportunity to come back as a temporary companion as Leela, for the next Doctor, Peter Davison's first season, but she turned that down, a decision she later said she regretted. It would have been a very different show if she'd done that. Mm. She did return for the universally vilified 30th anniversary story Dimensions in Time, though. Universally, eh? Universally. (laughs) Nobody likes that story. Oh, it's. I'll show it to you when we get to that point in story order, because, (laughs) oh my god, it's such a shit show. And she has returned as Leela for Big Finish Productions, first in the story of Zagreus in 2003, then as a regular protagonist in the company's ongoing series Gallifrey where we find out what eventually became of her marriage to Andred. Spoiler alert, it doesn't turn out great. She is currently back working with Tom Baker as companion to his fourth Doctor in the new audios, having long forgiven him for his behavior towards her decades ago. And those new audios are actually something special. They really have a chemistry now that they didn't quite have then. And finally, the answer to that Sphinxian riddle, how is it that we lose two companions but only one actor... We lose K-9 Mark I in the story, but K-9 Mark II will make his debut next season, and he will also be voiced by John Leeson. Graham Williams saw this as an opportunity to get a new K-9 prop created, and while it looks the same as the old one and has some minor improvements that made it slightly easier to work with, it still had some of the same issues as the old one, which is why the next producer will despise it. <laughs> K-9 will be with us for at least three more companions, though there's a riddle to be had about two of them that I'll save for another time. So, 
Let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? Who hasn't done it in a while? Allison, I don't think you've done it in a while. I've managed to get out of it for months at a time. You have, <laughs> so it's your turn. A traitor to the Time Lords? Can the Doctor really be in league with the evil Vardan spearheading a treacherous invasion of his home planet, Gallifrey? Or is he playing a deadly double game, saving the Time Lords by appearing to betray them? But the Vardans themselves are only pawns in the game, and the Doctor faces an old and deadly enemy as he battles to foil the invasion of time. And if you look at the cover, you know exactly who that enemy is. <laughs> so the big reveal of the story is blown right from the start. <sighs> mm-hmm. Allison, what was your first impression when you got this book? Well, I think you asked us to have a look at it a few weeks ago. My first impression is the doctor has jaundice. <laughs> um, but then I started looking at the Santara, and, and to my horror, I, I think he's dead and preserved in formaldehyde. Yes. And they both have a certain malaise, and the doctor looks like he's wearing a serape. But I do like the gear design they have everywhere. Oh, yeah, that's the doctor's office that's lined in lead. Which the Santerra never ends up in, so it's kind of surprising he's there. Interesting you should bring up that he looks like a dead man, because the actor is named Derek Deadman. <laughs> yeah. And probably one of, uh, I hate to say this, but probably one of the worst actors to play a Santaran, Because not only is he too tall for it, which one of our reviewers will point out, but also he has this very, very Cockney accent. Oh. So you've got, <laughs> there's one line in particular where he says, he's trapped in here with us now. And it's like, oh my God. <laughs> he sounds like he's going out on the streets of London to cap somebody. Just now it sounded more like Bob Dylan, which would also be pretty enter entertaining. Well, see, there you go. It, it's all drawling of that sort of thing. So yeah. <laughs> Dalton, what about your first impression? Yeah, you had mentioned that you wished you could have redacted part of the cover, and I I could definitely do without the Santaran on the cover. It, it reminds me of a wax figure that's melting. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, and the, and the Doctor's corduroy scarf. It doesn't look knitted. It looks like corduroy to me. Yeah. I think if they would have showed some uh, restraint with the cover... <laughs> The, the back would have at least been a little more intriguing. Of course, we know the Doctor isn't actually trying to help someone take over Gallifrey. But yeah, it would have been nice not to know who was actually trying to take over Gallifrey. Yes. Um, because, you know, it, it could have been the Daleks. It could have been Cybermen again. It could have been, who knows, any anything new. But yeah, just immediately knowing that it's Santarans, it's like, okay, well, now I know what I have in store. So to speak. So to speak, yeah. <laughs> well, and I have expressed some sympathy before to putting Daleks on the cover for marketing purposes for people who say, oh, I love the Daleks. I want to read all the stories with the Daleks. But is there really a, was there really, do you think in 1979, a substantial fan base for Santarans? No, no. Santarans, <laughs> Santarans aren't quite as popular. I mean, it took forever for them to be reintroduced into the new series. And now they're kind of, whenever they show up, it's more for comedic effect than anything. Uh -huh. But yeah, no, they were never quite the big hitters that the Daleks and the Cybermen were. That being said, when I did see the story as a kid and we got to the end of episode four, 
not knowing, of course, that there are two more episodes coming. That was a surprise. Yeah, it actually totally worked within the story, I thought, as a yeah. sort of double reveal. But the Doctor and the Centauran both look so terribly disappointed and dispirited on the cover. They're probably dispirited because the Vardens look so stupid. <laughs> because the way the Vardens are shown on screen, I think on, on the page Dix describes them as shimmering formless light. Mm-hmm. They are done on screen as aluminum foil oh my god (laughs) which is being shaken and you can actually hear the foil rattling that's part of the effect so that when the effects were redone for dvd they absolutely redid the vardans they they completely redid them because they no longer look like sheets of aluminum foil but they're still kind of weird but yeah you could tell the money (sighs) had definitely run out and yet I disapprove of redoing special effects for TV shows. <laughs> I usually do. In the case of the Vardens, I am 100% for it. <laughs> the suffering of humanity yes. was too great under the previous effects. The, yeah, there's <laughs> just nothing at all tense about seeing a sheet of aluminum foil, even if it's superimposed over an image. I did like the description of them being described as seeming not quite here, not quite solid, and it turns out they weren't quite there and projected. There's a sort of nice mysteriousness about it. Now, that would be great, especially if they did them the same way that uh, the Cybermen were shown in Army of Ghosts in the new series, that when it was believed that the ghosts of former loved ones were coming back on a regular basis to Earth, and it turns out it was the Cybermen trying to push their way into our reality, that effect would have been great, except that effect wasn't possible in 1978. They probably could have done it... mm, They probably could have done the Vardens by doing one of those ghost effects that they could do then, like a superimposition. The only problem is you would be able to see that they were humanoid from the start. And that would have been a bit of a problem. Yeah. Well, it's kind of funny. Like, we're we're talking about how disappointing their ephemeral form is, I guess. Uh, And then we learned that uh, they're just humanoid. <laughs> and, yes. and everyone is just kind of disappointed that they aren't something greater. Yes, I did exactly. like that. Yeah. Although they have good tech, they have impressive technology, but that's, that's the whole show. Yeah, the fact that they could be eldritch beings from the outside. Right. <laughs> and it turns out, in fact, on screen, the, the line is, they're human. It's like, no, they're not human. They're not from Earth. But they are humanoid. Dix does fix that in the book, mm. thank God. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they're they're essentially in fact if you ever if you Google the picture of them, they're humanoids, all right. They are just people in really stupid space costumes. It's not the most horrible space costume that's ever been done on Doctor Who. That's coming still. <laughs> we have that to look forward to. <laughs> yeah, they, they don't have uh capes like the people in those costumes that I'm thinking about have. But they're, they're pretty bad. They're pretty bad. So where do we... In fact, I know exactly where I want to start with this. And that is, did either of you believe that the Doctor actually was trying to do this? Was trying to aid and abet an invasion of Gallifrey somehow out of revenge or something? No. Okay. No, Uh, I just it always felt like there was some kind of bigger scheme at hand. And even if he wasn't doing this 
for revenge. It was possible that he was under some kind of control so that he, you know, it wasn't actually him doing it. I had thoughts that it possibly was somehow the master coming back somehow disguised as the doctor. Mm. Yeah, I, I never felt like this was actually the doctor aiding and abetting another uh, (laughs) race to do away with the Time Lords, no matter how uh, offended he is by them. I I like your story better. That yeah. that would have been awesome if the master had come back disguised as the doctor, and then you'd have a doppelganger of the doctor. We do get a story like that coming soon, by the way. Yeah. Well, in a couple seasons, but <laughs> that would have been more interesting than what we had gotten. They they certainly yeah. hammered the master enough in this, didn't they? Yeah. Well, and I think it's because like the last time we were on Gallifrey was the last story we've seen the master in. Mm-hmm. So it's very much as kind of like trying to jog our memory of this is what Gallifreyan society is like. This is what the Time Lords are like. This is their power structure. So yeah, it felt like that could have been a continuation. The Master's back to have his final revenge or whatever my brain was thinking. It definitely did did not pan out that way. (laughs) Okay. And how about you, Allison? Did you think he really could have done it? I agree that Dalton's writing a, a more interesting story. Uh, but I liked that the in the prologue, we see that the TARDIS is in the Varden ship right away. So there's no excess coyness, because I think it would have been very tiresome to even pretend to play at length with the idea of, has the Doctor turned evil? No, of course not. We know he's up to something, but we don't know what, and there are a lot of interesting possibilities. So that part of the back cover didn't really spoil anything. And I, I you know, I like the pro, I, I like a good Dick's prologue of, you know, the Varden ship being described as a killer whale, predatory, murderous. So mm-hmm. I thought it set up a number of interesting possibilities, but I didn't think Dix was really that self-indulgent about fooling himself that he would fool the reader, that we would think the Doctor had was actually up to something nefarious. Yeah, which is interesting, because Dix has gone on record as saying that if any of the Doctors were ever to go evil... It would be the fourth Doctor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I could see that. And if you watch the performance, Tom Baker gives a bravura performance in this because he is absolutely believable as, oh, the Doctor has indeed lost his mind to the point that he doesn't want Leela around him, that he tells K-9 to pull his blaster on her. Yeah. And at one point, when... When she follows him to the TARDIS and she's banging on the door, what's heartbreaking about that scene is that they show the doctor inside the TARDIS covering his ears. And it's like, oh my god, this this is serious. But the story would still be that the doctor is under some kind of mind control. Yeah. Not not that he's gone dark. Exactly. Yeah, because we're never going to believe that the Doctor is going to turn entirely evil. That That's going to try to become a plot point in a later story arc, but let's not even get into that whole mess yet. <laughs> because, yeah, I just don't want more of a headache than I already have. Um, but I can imagine when the episodes first aired, thinking of that as more of a possibility, by the time the novelization comes out, you would have, if you're a a person who is interested in a Tom Baker Doctor Who novel, you would have heard by then that there was a season finale where, you know, the Doctor destroyed Gallifrey or similar. Like, you can only tease it out so much when it's an adaptation of an existing story. True. 
Except if you were, say, a fan growing up in southwestern Virginia and you didn't have access to Doctor Who magazine yet because it wasn't out yet, it was Doctor Who Monthly, but you didn't have access to Doctor Who Monthly, you weren't really hearing that scuttlebutt, and you hadn't gotten the book yet. So this could really have been surprising in many ways, and it is. It's just, uh, the surprise we get at the end is... mm, I suppose we have to talk about the elephant in the room, don't we? Leela and Mm -hmm. Andred. (laughs) 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 Oh my god, they retconned that marriage as quickly as they could in the audios. (laughs) I mean, it's not horrible, it's just a complete non-event. I mean, it's not offensive. They try to make him somewhat positive as a character. Mm -hmm. Um, Could have been so much worse. Yeah. I'm trying to imagine how... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, they could have made him, I don't know, sort of chauvinistic and, you know, shown him charming her by, uh, you know, outfighting her or something like that. They could have had some sort of, yes, fantasy of she has the hots for a guy who defeats her in hand-to-hand combat. It's the only way to win her heart. Something. There are all kinds of awful tropes they could have gone with. Now, see, that would have made more sense to me, especially if, and this is something I've thought for a long time, if she had ended up with one of the outsiders. Yes. That would have made a lot more sense as a story. The thing that seemed completely odd to me is, is she going to live in Time Lord society? Yeah. Is she going to fit in? Are they going to accept her? That that yeah. seemed odd to me. Is she going to take him outside to live in the forest? Yeah. From, from the start, I felt, uh, without knowing, I felt like this was going to be the story that Leela would go out in. And yeah, once I learned about the outsider society, I'm like, oh yeah, she's totally going to end up here. These are her people, you know, whatever. And yeah, to to hear that she ends up with a guard from Gallifrey. Well, like, the captain of the guard. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, that's that seemed very uncharacteristic, even with it being a, a quick romance. I mean, the doctor is like the best matchmaker uh, yes. <laughs> without realizing it, like... Yeah, I mean, I mean, how many how many companions is this that have have left to for a love interest? Well, I think it's four. It might be three. Let's think. Uh, Vicky left to marry Troilus, which is the the only one that Joe kind of worked. Well, no, no, Joe actually also kind of worked. Yeah, and I think I Susan, think she's the third. I did not. Like. Oh, and Susan, right? So she is the fourth. You're yeah. right. Victoria. Oh well, Victoria is to go to live with that couple, right? She, yeah, she does not unless unless she's joining them in a menage a trois. No, <laughs> she is not joining a marriage. I'm just trying to think of who left for other reasons. Well, these are the only four that actually left for marriage. That would be Susan, Vicky, Joe, and Leela. I'm trying to remember how Fraser Hines left. Oh, he has his memory wiped by the Time Lords and sent back to his own time. Ooh. And we find out later that it didn't take. <laughs> I think I didn't read that one. Yeah, it's the War Games. I think you were actually part of that. No, no, I read the. No, I read the War Games. I, just yeah. guess, I guess it was such a forgettable ending that I it, failed it to retain is. it. Well, the book ending is anyway. But I thought that the story was going to be that Andred would. I, the only thing we have, only preview we have of the ending is earlier on we're told that Andrew you know vaguely has the the huts for Leela, and I thought he might join them on the TARDIS until the next story, and then right. Get yeah. off at the next stop. That could have worked. Yeah. Are we told this relationship is consensual or is she just appropriated him? It's cons- Well, <laughs> we're not told one way or the other because as far she as we know. She makes the announcement and he yeah. seems okay with it. Uh, yeah. 
essentially. We assume they had a quiet word off camera because they never had a quiet word on camera. Mm-mm. Whereas, yeah, I I think it would have made a lot more sense. Maybe not the, the Time Lord who got thrown out to Outer Gallifrey, but definitely that guy who ends up dying. He would mm-hmm. have been a possible for her, except he has to get killed. And we don't want to give too many names to secondary characters in six-parter, lest the viewer forget who they are. Right. Yeah. The only thing that's kind of amusing is that they leave with, I think in modern terms, we call a non-fur baby, that they have like a complete three-person household with a <laughs> Yes, with, K- <laughs> with canine. <laughs> I actually liked the canine content in this story where canine and Leela are chatting at the beginning and she's informing him that sulking is also an emotion. Yes. <laughs> uh, and then what was this fabulous almost sexual line we have about how much he is enjoying the data upload? Oh, yeah. He connects to the TARDIS and is um, drawing data from it. Completely immersed in his greatest pleasure, the absorption of fresh data. I was that remark <laughs> yes he was he was in a kind of blissful electronic trance yes and then the next page there's the line canine's eyes lit up and all his antenna went rigid <laughs> <laughs> i don't know how that's possible because his antenna are already rigid but they do mention that his tail was wagging so that makes a little more sense yeah so canine gets a hard on from data uploads so. of course it does <laughs> Yeah, it's it's basically like a dog chewing a bone, kind of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. So this means that Leela and K-9 are both on Gallifrey, which leaves the door open for humans to later be on Gallifrey. That wasn't possible when Sarah wanted to go. So that at least gets explained a little bit better. However, the soft cannon... <laughs> which would be the um, books written in the 90s, and then the audio plays. It kind of goes something like this. Leela does indeed go out playing in Outer Gallifrey with K-9 most of the time, <laughs> but she lives in the Citadel with Andred, and it's just weird that that should work. But then we get to the first Gallifrey audio, and... I can't even tell you about that yet because it involves another character that we haven't met yet. So I'm going to hold off on that. So if you're wondering if I'm going to spoil the first audio of Gallifrey for you yet, I'm not. I will do that in probably another two seasons because (laughs) by then everybody will know who the characters are. Yeah, let's just say it actually is very satisfying what they end up doing. So I'm happy with it. I'm not happy with this, but I'm happy with what they ended up doing with it. (laughs) What else do we like about this book? Because I don't think any of us liked her departure. We would have liked better for her, including a a death would have worked. I enjoyed the doctor's relationship with Barusa. I I liked how initially Barusa is very uh, wary of the doctor being there and kind of what's going on. And then once the doctor is able to get into the lead-lined office and basically explain himself, Barusa's... He, he's game. He, he's like, okay, we can, we can, we can figure something out. So, see, <laughs> so seeing their kind of camaraderie and their their relationship kind of furthered from. I don't know why I can never think of the name of the story. Deadly Assassin. Uh, yes. Uh, see, seeing their relationship grow from that was was nice. And and yeah, like you were talking about, this one is a very fun version of Barusa compared to the last one. And I don't know the next two. Yeah, you would not think from Deadly Assassin that the Doctor had been one of Bruce's favorite students. 
because at the very end of the story, he essentially says, you need to leave. We need to preserve this version of history, of the official history, and then becomes essentially not president in fact, but president in effect, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then he regenerates and we get this old guy who is a delight. He's absolutely a delight. And I didn't get the feeling in this story that the doctor was one of his favorite students either, that he felt that he was a student with huge wasted potential. But he says that a couple of times. I perhaps also have wasted my potential to pay <laughs> well, no. attention during the story. In chapter two, he says the doctor had always been a secret favorite of his, despite a tendency to rashness and indiscipline. Okay. And... That is expanded upon when the doctor finally opens up to him and says, this is what's actually going on. I'm sorry I said all these things to you, but it was absolutely necessary because I'm sorry, you just can't distract the bad guys the way I can. I thought yeah. that was telegraphed in a way that it was a little obvious, but I thought worked nicely that he basically, the doctor tells Parisa relatively early on, so he's like, you know me pretty well you're going to have to trust that you're good at figuring out what i'm doing i'm i'm, I'm paraphrasing greatly here but but you're right but he, he does have a great trust in bruce's instinct to understand the general outlines of what might be going on and what might what might be off in a way where the doctor is intentionally letting him see and feel that things are off and that there's more going on mm -hmm. yeah if anything it seems like bruce is somewhat complicit in trying to get Leela to get out of the Citadel and into Outer Gallifrey, because that's what the Doctor wants, too. Yes, and I thought it was that he had figured out that the Doctor is trying to neutralize some sort of threat, so he's just trying to get associates out of the city in case it's destroyed. Mm-hmm, exactly. Of course, he doesn't know that Leela's going to come in with her own army, <laughs> which she ends up doing, and that leads to the, that lovely exchange that is not on screen where she says, when she finally bursts into the office and says, Doctor, and he says, shut up, Leela. <laughs> <laughs> I love that moment. Uh, I thought I remember telling uh, K-9 to instruct her to do so. Yes. <laughs> like, tell K-9 to tell you to be quiet. K-9, <laughs> hey, wait a minute. There is There is a lot of very fun banter in... In this one. Yes. Uh, well, this one, Dick loves his uh, bureaucratic petty intrigues and rivalries, especially if he likes to contrast them against, I guess, looming extinction events mm -hmm. in a way that was originally Cold War setting, but still works really well today. Uh, petty partisan bickering in the face of extinction, possible extinction events. But I like uh, his description of Kellner is angry if you bore him with trivia and angry if you don't keep him abreast of everything he might be interested in knowing. Yes. <laughs> well, that's all in the original script, thank goodness. I, in fact, he gives Kellner a lot more motivation than Kellner actually has on screen because Kellner is basically just a standard stereotypical toady. Interestingly enough, played by the same actor who played Guy Crawford from The Android Invasion. So it's that same actor. And he's playing smarmy here really, really well to the point that you really kind of miss his predecessor who Dix gives a uh, name check to. And the other Time Lords are really, the few that we get are really kind of great. I adore Gomer, which sounds far less silly with a British accent. 
<laughs> yeah, I, if you say Lord Goma, it sounds much different. But when you're reading on the page, it's like, golly, his yeah. name's Gomer. <laughs> Gomer Pyle immediately popped into my head. <laughs> so I had uh, I did the audiobook read by John Leeson. I've heard one or two by him before, and this was by far the best. It was tremendous. His delivery was, was terrific. Really? Um, yes, which I was not expecting, read by John Leeson, but it was so funny. And I didn't even think once of Gomer Pyle, which shows you how well he pulled that off. <laughs> <laughs> I even made a, a pun about it in the uh, script where Gomer, uh, Lord Gomer, is saying something and he's basically just egging on Bruce and letting him have it. And I was like, don't you love the way that Gomer piles on at this point? Uh... Yeah. Uh... Sorry, I had to get that in there because seriously. I got. I definitely got an impression of Tom Baker's terrific Crazy Doctor performance. He's described as being a picture of lunatic grandeur, and uh, we have this terrific sequence of him being incredibly fussy over the interior design. And <laughs> even you're reading it, you can tell pretty obviously he's going towards lead-lined room. But the way that he gets there was was <laughs> I definitely yeah conveyed the idea that he's trying to go uh, full Nero. Yes. Uh, with, yes. with the delivery of it. Mm-hmm. Well, especially that speech that he gives to Kellner over the Jelly Babies. One gets tired of Jelly Babies, but one never gets tired of power. And the way he orders the Time Lords to Outer Gallifrey and says, let them go one at a time, that will increase their terror. And it's like, oh my god. Mm-hmm. You have to wonder in story what his reason is for doing that, because why not put them all out at the same time? Well, and that we know that he's not going to turn out to just be turning evil. We don't know what he's going to be doing. When he did the impromptu inspection of the guard upon disembarking, I thought it was just purely a momentary bluff to lead them away from the TARDIS and Lita. I didn't, Leela, I didn't realize he was going to be keeping that up the whole story. Yeah. So it really was a surprise when he announced that he was a candidate and a winner for the presidency. Yeah, which has uncomfortable parallels with now doesn't it i mean we have somebody who's a very loud blowhard who keeps making statements that are meant to be distracting and claiming that they won an election but we don't believe that tom baker is actually going to collaborate with a foreign power (laughs) <laughs> uh, just so that he can have the interior design and the title that he likes, I guess. <laughs> exactly. Whereas in the other case, we absolutely believe that. Yeah. yeah. There's no need to think about it. Gosh, any... I forgot the story about Trump not seeming particularly, of course, being shocked that he won, but not seeming particularly comfortable with any of the new duties until he was shown a book of fabric and wallpaper samples for the Oval Office. And of course. Finally seemed at ease. Yeah. I found an interesting parallel because Dix describes the doctor talking to Bruce's empty chair, and it reminds me of doddering old Clint Eastwood conducting his interview with an empty chair and saying Mr. Obama at the Republican National Convention some years back. Mm-hmm. Oh, we laughed so much at that back then, didn't we? <laughs> oh, if only we'd known. Uh, the future. Yes, yeah. the doctor's only pretending to be Nero-like. I do remember seeing an interview that year with the union staff who had provided him with the stool, where he, he or his assistant asked if there was a stool, and they said, oh yeah, we, we can get a stool, and we thought... He's an older person, and we thought he'll just sit on it so he's more comfortable. Oh, God. <laughs> they, were asked, they were being asked if they knew what, what was coming. Like, no, no, he's an old man. He asked for a stool. We thought he needed a seat. <laughs> 
What did he need it for? I'm kind of confused now. Because he pretended Obama was seated was seated oh, on the stool. Oh, you mean Clint Eastwood? Yes. I thought you yes, were talking yes. about Trump. Jesus God. No, no, I'm talking about that's even more Clint Eastwood. Yeah, that it was actually planned. Rodan. I loved Rodan and Lila Bean so much. (laughs) I am ready to watch this buddy comedy. Uh, I know it's classic country mouse, city mouse, but I am the audience for it. Really? Why? I thought it was so funny. I I like Rodan being the sort of blasé former gifted child. Yes. (laughs) And a high-ranking, very boring, bureaucratic job. And then, you know, of course, I have the role switch later on. But, you know, telling Lila, oh, I knew I was going to like you right away. Yeah. I imagined her uh, chewing gum, just sitting at the, you know, <laughs> sitting sitting at the desk behind her shield, just blowing bubbles and kind of Filing like, her nails. Yeah, trying to figure out what to do to waste some time until <laughs> someone comes and takes over the shift. And <laughs> she said she knew she was going to like Leela right away because she said something like, you know, I'm completely bored by astrophysics, aren't you? And Leela sort of nods. See, I knew I was going to like you. You're also bored by. Astrophysics. <laughs> They oh, had yeah. so they seemed to on the page have so much more chemistry than Leela and Android. Which again, I didn't think Android was objectionable. It was just kind of available partner. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It would have it would have absolutely made so much more sense to me if Leela decided to uh, stay and hang out with her dad because <laughs> they were well. They actually worked as an odd couple. Opposites attract friendship. I don't think we were going to have a same sex couple on television no. on the bbc in the 70s but you wouldn't have to you know if, if vicky left to uh, live with the couple leela can leave to hang out with rodan throw quips around even though i think louise jameson's character in tanko may be a lesbian so louise jameson herself probably would have been more than willing she's she's very lgbt friendly so that would have been fine, but you're right. Late 70s British television, children's television, it would never have gone over. I'm glad, though, that you like their odd couple relationship, because in a few years' time, once I can tell you about the Gallifrey audios, you may actually find yourself seeking them out to listen to them, because there's a similar dynamic with her and another character in those audios. And it's just brilliant. I like talk is for the wise and helpless, and I am neither. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> exactly. And she doesn't give herself enough credit, does she? She really doesn't. Because she knew that the doctor wanted her to go out there for some reason. <laughs> yeah. And Dan says, but that's not possible. He's a traitor. Reason dictates. Then reason's a liar. Yeah, yeah. Leela the whole time, even though she didn't know what was going on, had enough faith and trust in the doctor to just do as he told. Exactly. I say, well, he's throwing out lines like someone saying, he'll have me killed. Don't worry, I'll have him killed. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like a blind faith situation without her being just like doting. She has enough history with him to understand that sometimes he makes hard decisions that don't seem rational at the time. Yes. But they they do end up resolving. <laughs> Precisely. And it's you're right, it almost is a blind faith to some degree. It it really is quite sweet. I find it sweet in their goodbye scene that the doctor actually says to her directly, Goodbye, Savage. He doesn't on screen. He actually smiles at her, closes the door, leans against the door, and almost whispers it. Which has its own form of sweetness, but it's like why not tell her directly? Probably because Tom Baker didn't want to say those words to Louise Jameson directly. <laughs> so, yeah, that kind of works, though. 
I'm sure it was something like that. I like that the uh, style of attire she wants for the ceremony is just a full complement of weapons. Yeah, yeah, precisely. (laughs) She's very lucky, though, that Gallifrey appears to have LARPers, because if it didn't, (laughs) it might be a little difficult to find anybody to help her in Outer Gallifrey. (laughs) Because essentially, that's what the outsiders are, aren't they? They're live-action role players. Mm, I didn't think of it that way. They are essentially that. They, it's like, oh, we, we hate modern society. Ho, ho. We're going to go out into the wilderness and we're going to hunt and kill and eat and hunt and kill and eat. And we're going to dress in skins, which is actually what they do. So Leela would absolutely fit in with these people so much better than she would in the Citadel. But the fact of the matter is that the outsiders, unless they've been kicked out because they physically attack somebody else, are essentially hipsters. They're Gallifreyan <laughs> hipsters. But they don't go back to the Citadel on the weekends or during the week. I mean, they do no. actually no. do all these things. Like, don't they actually live a survival lifestyle? They, they do, but you can tell that the way that they've been put in the script and the way that Dix has described them is that they're hippies who have... In fact, one even says they dropped out... And yeah. it's like, oh, okay, so that phrase still Gallif- meant that. Yeah. <laughs> Gallifrey and Cottagecore, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's precisely that. It, it's essentially, in fact, I'm not surprised that a companion left to marry somebody in this story. Because the last time we got this sort of group in a story was Green Death. And that's when Joe Grant left mm. to be part mm-hmm. of that group. So it's, yeah, it's a very 70s way to leave, I guess. But, yeah. Ugh, I think the Time Lords are terrible shots. <laughs> yes. So the Outsiders have actually figured out some basic weapons operation in the way that, or of more primitive weapons in the Time Lords who have been in the Citadel manage. Yeah, they um, kind of have to because a staser would probably ruin the whatever meat animal that they've been killing out there in the mm-hmm. wastelands. Well, and speaking of killing, I guess I've grown used to the regular annoying feature where the doctor rather uncharacteristically is, you know, completely accepting of the fact that Leela just wants to kill, kill, kill all the time. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it did still manage to surprise me that he was so casual about the massacre of Andred's guards uh, yes. by his mm-hmm. own, by the guards who were uh, loyal to Kellner and... I get the feeling the doctor has a pretty uh, good idea they are both there to guard him and to guard against him if necessary. Mm -hmm. So he seemed uh, pretty jolly about that. Yeah. And it doesn't seem to bother Andrew much either. It's something that didn't register with me ever with this story until I read it this time. And then I was like, wait a minute. He straight up let that guard get killed by the Varden. Mm -hmm. And this is something that the doctor, by inaction, would generally never allow to happen, even if he had a bigger plan afoot, because that person is not coming back. So maybe it's he figures that it's one of the guards who's loyal to Kellner rather than to Andred, though that's not as strongly suggested there. Yeah, it's a a bit of a problem. The other thing is the way Gallifrey has been shown in the new series... You don't really need the outsiders, you just need the indigenous Gallifreyans, or rather the Gallifreyans that aren't Time Lords. 
I continue to be confused about the anthropology <laughs> of Gallifrey because remember last story, it was a great shock to me that there were humanoids on Gallifrey who weren't Time Lords. And I was confused about whether or not Time Lord was a species or a social class. And Well, this will confuse you a bit more because the original idea for the story was for the outsiders to be indigenous Gallifreyans. And the Time Lords were another species that settled on Gallifrey and they allowed them to do so. They decided that was a little too complicated. The Time Lords gentrified Gallifrey, and now the original inhabitants can't afford to live in town. It's kind of like that in the new series, though. Except that you have Gallifreyans who, naturally born, don't have the ability to regenerate, or, or, or so we think. We're, we're not actually told that at any time, though. They'd be, there'd be a hell of a population problem if that were the case. We do know that children are naturally born, even though... In the 90s, there was soft canon that said that Time Lords aren't. We won't even get into that just yet. But a Time Lord is someone who has gone through the Academy and who is granted the ability to regenerate. And we now think, from what's been revealed in the new series, that that's literally true. That Gallifreyans themselves do not have the ability to regenerate. It is given to them, and it comes with a 12 regeneration limit, even though we now know that that also doesn't seem to be the case, though it only applies to the Doctor, who appears to have infinite numbers of regenerations. <laughs> yeah. Something else that kind of sh uh, shocked me, and I guess it confused me, there's a line, Dick says, that the capital was so large that it covered most of Gallifrey. Yeah, no. <laughs> and so, yeah, in my mind, I kind of had this vision, kind of like Coruscant in the Star Wars universe, where, yeah, it's a whole planet just that's a city. Wouldn't but that be lovely? It, it would It would be so overwhelming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it would make this business of the outsiders ring a bit truer because that would mean there's so little of the outside. From what I've seen of Classic Who and in the new series, it's just a city. It's just a city. It, it's not that expansive. It doesn't overtake a whole planet. So yeah. I'm I'm wondering what what's the thinking there? What it was that it's Not just... even the whole hospital. No. <laughs> it isn't. Was that Dick's just trying to Yeah. That's Dick's absolutely trying to make this much more epic than yeah. it actually is on the screen. Because on screen, we don't actually see the join between the outside and the inside. We never see like a gate or anything like that. We never see an airlock. I thought it was going to be more like you know the two domed cities or other, other stories we read where there is a, a definite demarcation between... A settlement or a fortress and then people who live a more rustic lifestyle but well whenever we see gallifrey in the new series it is exactly that whenever they show a city on gallifrey and there's the implication that there's more than one which there should be probably yeah. um whenever it, it's shown on screen you see it as essentially domed city yeah. and the, it's surrounded by mountains or wilderness or what have you the story that i'm specifically thinking about where the 11th doctor returns to gallifrey and is apparently among the rustic folk where he supposedly was raised all of that is outside the city and it's those gallifreyans who are most in danger from the Dalek War, because they're not Time Lords. They're not the ones who actually started the war. 
the Time Lords did. So it's a bit of column A, a bit of column B, Dalton. It's Dix trying to make it into something large in his own mind. And in fact, some of the books from the 90s take that imagery instead and say, yeah, it's essentially Coruscant. Okay. Which I've never been able to pronounce properly. But yeah, it's a a planet-wide city, but it's never been that on screen. It doesn't make a lot of sense for it to be. (laughs) I mean, it could be, but it, yeah, just talking about there being primitives or, you know, outsiders, I was like, well, don't they need somewhere to hunt? Don't they need somewhere to live? Right. <laughs> but, yeah. 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 It's more like Central Park. <laughs> <laughs> the whole planet's Manhattan. But... A little game reserve. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll go with your idea. They're hippies who live in the park and eat rodents and oh god grow carrots and stuff giant rats well leela should be able to help them fight those Uh, rabbits are rodents i think yeah they are cute adorable rodents that also (laughs) taste very good but yes they are rodents squirrels yeah yeah i like how the story deals with the spatial anomalies of the interior of the tardis that leela was wandering around one day and she found a swimming pool and she figured out how to get back to it and oh i thought the one of the more amusing lines of the the whole novel was i do wish you would stabilize your pedestrian infrastructure doctor <laughs> and then later the doctor's trying to tell leela how to find something she says it's best if you just don't give directions at all <laughs> yes <laughs> and on, on screen she says it's all right i can find my own way yeah <laughs> Because when he does give her directions, and this is something that made me as a kid laugh my ass off, when he says, well, where are they? In the bathroom. In the bathroom? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Did you get lost again? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, I couldn't find it. You're supposed to take them to the VIP lounge. I left them in the bathroom. (laughs) <laughs> Which, of course, is the pool room, but yes. the, the idea of Marusa hanging out in the toilet waiting for the doctor to show up. <laughs> Very funny. <laughs> I mean, we started talking about the, the, the less illustrious elements of this, but I thought it was actually a, a, a terrific uh, breezy beach book. Really? A quick read. Yeah, I, I thought it was a fun, light story. I guess I really wasn't that worried about Gallifrey, but I, I thought it had a lot of humor in it. It does. I'm sure his hearts are at the right place. I didn't say it was a masterpiece, but... Strangely enough, this story got criticized by the head of serials at BBC for being too comedic. Which is interesting because when you look at the next two seasons, this almost comes off as Hamlet by comparison. Hmm. Yeah, the, the, the comedy levels in the series are about to go massively up. Tom Baker is still kind of somewhat in control, not towards his co-star, obviously. But that control is going to slip. Oh, he means to be a jerk to her, and he succeeds, I thought. Yeah, well, there's that. But he is going to get to the point where what he says essentially goes. And the push is for more humor, and we will get a lot more of it. But you're right. The quips in the story are just amazing. No, no one's ever called me smug. You know, actually, many have. Okay, that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant. I also... Speaking of jokes, I I do have one because um, we're about to find out that Gallifrey and women have multi-syllable names that they regularly have to diminutize to two syllables or to three. Rodan cannot be her full name. So I'm almost certain that her name is Rodan Rodanadana. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Thank you. I'm here all week. Oh my God. (laughs) 
think that the uh, what succeeds in opening the door is I know it's not a password, but uh, doing an impression of saying there's nothing so useless as a voice print lock. <laughs> yes. yes. So in my mind, I decided that that was actually a form of password to do an impression of him saying there's nothing so useless as a voice print lock. <laughs> is the voice print unlock? Yeah. Because IT installed it. He has to have a voice print lock. There's no getting around it. Right. So he, basically he picks something the effect of the password is password. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I I think it hilarious that the Santarans know the doctor as Doctor. They doctor. don't realize. <laughs> yeah. They don't realize that the president of Gallifrey is the doctor. They don't think of him as the doctor. They think of him as Doctor. Every time I read that, I read it in the voice of a Dalek, though. <laughs> yeah, and it's not too far from it. It's it's ridiculous, in fact. There, speaking of ridiculousness, this ultimate weapon that can only be made with the key to time. I think I completely erased that from my mind already. Uh, oh my god! I'm sorry. Not the gr- not the key to time. That's next season. The great key. <laughs> there are two keys. We'll get there. But do they have the cosmic key in there too? While they're key collecting. Uh, kind of well the the next the next season is going to be the key to time season and the thing that ends up being the key to time looks like a cosmic cube so good guess there but in this case it's the great key which we actually did not hear much about in deadly assassin we only heard that the president was tasked to find it Mm -hmm. actually no that that was this story we were told that the master had stolen it when actually he hadn't it can apparently be used to create this ultimate weapon, which horrifies Barusa and even horrifies Rodan when she realizes she's helped create it, which is why she has to be hypnotized to create it. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, she'd realize what she was doing is a dematerialization gun. It's a fucking gun that we have already had in the giant robot. <laughs> How on earth is the disintegrator gun from giant robot? meant to be the ultimate weapon and something that terrifies the Time Lords so greatly that they don't want anyone to have hold of it. I was thinking of the story in the new series where Martha does her year-long journey through the dystopia of the Master's Rule, supposedly collecting nine parts of a gun. Later on, she's making fun of the idea that anyone would believe (laughs) such a stupid idea as a doomsday gun and nine parts. Were they making fun of the story? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I feel sophisticated for having figured out <laughs> that maybe what they were making fun of. It did also remind me of basically every storyline to every Power Rangers episode I ever watched as a kid, <laughs> where the whole episode, they're fighting the bad guy using martial arts, and then all of a sudden, Rita Repulsa makes him grow to the size of a skyscraper, and then they call their Power Zor, and then they fight him in that thing and then all of a sudden they're like oh wait let's do the finishing move and like every episode it was just like let's pull out a gun and shoot this guy (laughs) (laughs) which is really against the spirit of martial arts yeah yeah (laughs) unless they turn into a kaiju in which case it's fair game how is it going to take him out you can't do a karate kick if you're going to take out tokyo tower with a a a stray kick or something but it was just like this idea that just assemble all the parts together and then you have the magic weapon and boom everyone's doomed yeah and the the thing that would have made much more sense is if that gun didn't just dematerialize someone but also wiped them out of the timeline i thought that was kind of what it did 
but they don't I, say that. Mm, I just took it that way. I thought way. it was leading up to better things. I actually like the uh, junk drawer full of various interesting-looking keys. Yes. <laughs> I, said, I, feel, I feel like the cosmic key was in there. I don't think you'd put in the cosmic cube because it would be too obviously not a key. I could be wrong. But they... uh, yeah, it, it was kind of a letdown. I thought they were going for something, going headed towards something much more clever. On screen, it is a lot more cleverly visually done because Bruce's office has a wall and it's nothing but keys. Yeah, I, I like that. It's hidden somewhere in here. Yeah, and he actually hands the doctor a key and the doctor throws it down and he gives him another and he throws it down and finally Bruce goes to his desk and opens a drawer and comes out with the, the real one and you're like, you clever bastard. But it's DMAC gun, so God, I don't know. And this whole stabilizer field, oh, you can't use a weapon in the console room, but you can use it anywhere else in the TARDIS. It's like, um, Temporal Grace only works in the console room? <laughs> Why? Because the TARDIS is old, and in a later story, it's not even going to work in the console room, so let's not even bother with it. Just fuck it's, with it. it's like Wi-Fi. It only extends so far. <laughs> Well, it is an older TARDIS, so yeah, I have they a feeling... They need to to work on their Wi-Fi. Right. I have a feeling... Well, she calls it junk, and I'm, I'm, it's not surprising. Yes! <laughs> yeah. The TARDIS I don't think is he uses junk. the term jalopy, but some, that's, yeah, the spirit of her analysis. Yeah, yeah. essentially. Driving not around even, on this whole clunker? They're not even using Wi-Fi on the TARDIS. They're using dial-up. It's essentially that. <laughs> Oh, God. Now I'm composing another novel where Anna Rodin becomes like the chief minister of technological innovation and Leela is her security slash sidekick. And she keeps trying <laughs> to teach Leela about engineering and Leela just keeps sharpening the implements into weapons. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, you kind of have to wonder how Leela's going to fit into that. And that later audio series kind of fills in some of those gaps, which is part of the joy of listening to it. The other part of the joy of listening to it is Louise Jameson is just a marvelous voice actress, as you've oh, already yeah. seen. Yeah, you've read enough audiobooks with her. So, Well, anything else you want to say about this before we go to Goodreads? I have checked every box on my two pages. Okay. Dalton? I'm pretty sure we've covered everything, but yeah, I think we've exhausted what we've exhausted was you. Yeah. Well, that too, but um, you have had enough of the bounty of our thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> well, you think the the six parter there would be more to it, but there really isn't. So, as we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may get your review read out loud here. Before being disgusted by the book ourselves, did you say? No, no. <laughs> Foolish, stupid woman. Okay, the average rating oh, for this book... Not by the book, book but by the, uh, the panelists. Well, that too. This time, yes. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.61. That's low, isn't it? Uh, it's not high. It's, it's definitely in the average range. Yeah, it's like a mid-range score. Yeah. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Sorry, everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, our Patreon Dave Davis gives it 3.5 stars and says, like the last couple of stories, my memory of the TV version was that it was so bad that the book would be an automatic improvement. 
on rewatching this one, I found some justification for thinking that for this one, but once again, I found I was being too harsh. The Vardens in their incorporeal form were bad, obviously, but not giant rat bad, <laughs> and could be easily ignored. My two main gripes were confined to the last two episodes, one of them the chase through the TARDIS, just the final episode. Aside from the console room, those scenes are shot on location, and the jump from video to film is jarring, not just visibly but audibly, too, with too much echo. An early scene of Leela in the TARDIS's swimming pool escapes my criticism, as swimming pools are supposed to sound like that. Terrence Sticks improves on the visuals by making the corridors metallic rather than brickwork. Yeah, they're brickwork in the um, TV show. He even reduces the light level, always welcome in Doctor Who, though a little redundant in prose. My other main complaint is with the Sontarans. They're supposed to be short and squat because their planet has much higher gravity than Earth. Indeed, that's how Dix describes them. Yet on screen, they always in the original run seem to be more or less average height. Fortunately, in the new series, shorter actors were cast. Derek Dedman as Storr sounds like the love child of a constipated warthog and William Shatner. And is a distraction whenever he speaks. You sure you're not repeating yourself there, Dave? Because constipated <laughs> warthog, William Shatner. Thanks, Dave. Now I won't sleep tonight. <laughs> oh, by the way, the other fun thing about these taller Santarans, one of them tries to jump over a pool chair by the pool and trips and almost falls into the pool on screen, so that's fun. Oh, God. Of course, Leela's abrupt departure always attracts criticism. The romance is too whirlwind to be credible. There's too little dicks can do about there's little dicks can do about that, though I think the book improves this aspect a little simply because with prose the reader is more able to control the tempo. The story seems to take longer to unfold than it does on TV, or maybe that's just me. The dog-like format, whereby a six-episode story split into a four-parter followed by two parts going off on a tangent, was put to good use. I can still remember watching on original broadcast, surprise, when the Santarans appeared at the end of episode four. It's a shame, then, that the book cover shows a Santaran. Damon in our Goodreads group gives it three stars and says, an okay book, the Santarans don't make an appearance until the end, and the Vardens are dispatched very easily. Clever idea, but didn't work for me. Did like finding out more about Gallifrey and the Time Lords. Yeah, there's a bit more of that. And finally, Daniel Cookwa gives it three stars and says, on television, it was a glorious epic mess. Terence Dick's adaptation is one of his more workmanlike affairs, losing some of the humor and nuance, but cleaning up the narrative and condensing the slower parts of the story into something much more pacey. There are a few nice little touches here and there if you keep your eye out for them. So, Dalton, out of five stars, how many would you give this one? Uh, I'm going to go with three on this one. It's not a complete (laughs) piece of garbage. Uh, It was, yeah... Like Allison said, it was it was enjoyable. There there were some really fun parts to this. I I liked a lot of the character banter. The story itself is kind of eh, but I think Dix did a, a pretty good job holding it together and and keeping me interested for the whole of the book. So three for me. Okay, and Allison. I'm gonna go with two point five and almost all the same remarks. <laughs> the plot was inoffensive and and vanished from the mind as soon as I was finished reading it, but did not annoy me and was a nice structural device for humorous character moments that that I enjoyed. It went down smoothly. All right, and as for me, I'd also give it a three for much the same reasons. There's not much here, and while the concept of a doctor going bad is really fascinating, 
we already know that that's not going to happen. And the bits of the story that I don't like are things that Dix really cannot do anything about, such as the way Leela leaves, for instance, or the fact that Rodan doesn't end up being the next companion, because I think she would have been marvelous. I thought that was also highly possible. Yeah. Yeah. Spoiler alert, the next companion will be a time lady, just not Rodan. (laughs) Well, and I I had a vague concept that the time lady and her hat will be coming, but I guess I'm always open to the possibility that there will be one or two story companions that I've never heard of. Yes. And I think you may have heard of this one, but we'll we'll get her next time, and we'll, we'll see what you think of her. But... Yeah, this this is perfectly fine. It's a nice little romp. It's a little easier on the page. We get a little more about Barusa and the Doctor, which is always nice. But in the end, yeah, it's decently average. So three stars. <laughs> I think I, I I like the idea of doing a story like this instead of a failed extravaganza. If they didn't have the budget to tell the other story that they wanted to tell, this actually worked because the grandeur is all in the performance of the Doctor pretending to be mad with power. And That's true. Yeah. I mean, they barely had the budget for this one, but if they had gone with the 100,000 cats that the other one required, <laughs> I think they wouldn't have managed it. <laughs> so thank you all thank you and thank you fellow time travelers for giving us your valuable time next time we start tom baker's fifth season as the doctor when we discuss ian martyr's novelization of the rebos operation <gasps> yes ian it's ian martyr yes. yes i know well don't get too excited this is not considered one of his better ones but it's been a while since i've read it we'll see in the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target's Book Club Podcast, all in word with no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at EmperorDalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club Podcast in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.